And turn with me this morning to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. So after uh, a little sabbatical from Romans 12, we're going to go back and uh, continue uh, through the remainder of the book of Romans. Over, over how long it takes us to, uh, to get to the end of chapter 16. Um, let me preface the sermon this morning by saying there will be a lot left on the cutting room floor uh, this morning. So uh, this sermon may uh, cause a lot of questions or warrant further further explanation from you uh, concerning uh, the teaching of the text. And so what I would encourage you to do is you have two options. Join with us in person on Wednesday night at 6.30 or join us online Wednesday night at 6.30 to get uh, what was left on the cutting room floor. We're going to dive deeper into this because there's no way. I thought about preaching a couple of sermons on it. And I've decided against that. I'm going to preach one sermon and move on. But I will spend uh, at least two Wednesday nights. Uh, if more than that warrants, we may go more than that. Uh, but at least the next two Wednesday nights dealing with this text. And actually, it's more of a word or two words than it is actually the text itself. So we'll go deeper on Wednesday nights, all right? So hopefully that will satisfy everyone who leaves here lacking today. It's also just a cheap pastoral stunt to get people to either watch or come on Wednesday nights. Okay? So I'll take full ownership of that. Verse 11, Romans chapter 12. Now we've already preached the first two-thirds of this verse, so don't forget about that. Um, That's why I'm not going to address the first two-thirds. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Now here's... Three words this morning. Actually, only two. In the Greek, only two words. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. I've entitled this morning's, I've tagged this morning's text, uh, True Identity. True Identity. And I've got three simple points this morning that you you may want to jot down if you're taking notes. And really... When we get to the end of the sermon, I'm going to basically give you two sentences that kind of crystallize the entirety of the sermon. So, point number one that I want to make from the text is I want us to talk about what's happening in the church as it relates to this text. The text tells us to serve the Lord. However, within the church, we are in the midst of an identity crisis. And I think this text, as you'll see, as it unfolds, points out that there's a major identity crisis going on in in Christianity. And it's not new. It just didn't happen in the last decade or so. It's been going on for quite a long time. As a matter of fact, it's been going on ever since the English Bible was translated. Now, some people have caught on to it, and many others have uh, failed to get clarification on who they are as a Christian. We all have a particular image of ourselves, right? 
Beliefs about the kind of person we are. Book sales, podcasts, social media posts, and magazine articles reveal our desire for a strong sense of identity. Human beings spend a great deal of time, energy, and resources to answer life's, to answer life's most existential question. Who am I? Who am I? Think about that this morning. If I were to ask you that question, who are you, what would you say? I would probably say that many of you would say, I am a Christian. And hopefully that would be accurate. I only have one problem with that response. That is such a vague term in our day today. Such a vague term. What does, I mean, what does Christian mean? Some people think Christian means ending a prayer in a man and a woman. So I'll just jump on the ship with you, David. If you want to need somebody to row that boat with you, I'll row it. By the way, the guy that prayed that prayer is supposedly an ordained minister in a Christian congregation. Undoubtedly, he didn't take Hebrew in Bible college or seminary to know what the word amen really means, and it has nothing to do with gender. But that's another sermon for another time. According to those who study psychology, having a strong sense of identity has many advantages. So what are some of those advantages? Now, listen, you kind of try to retain as much of this information right here as you can because this, this really kind of sets the tone and makes a connecting point at the end of the sermon. A clear sense of who you are makes it easier to connect with other similar people or groups. People with a strong identity often stand out and are more memorable. It is believed that a strong identity helps one make com- listen complex decisions. If you have a diff- if you have diff- difficulty making decisions, especially decisions that have some complexity to it, it might be that you don't have a strong sense of identity. Also, people with strong sense of identity uh, are, are more often uh, better equipped to face difficult circumstances and really know how to behave in general. They just know how to behave in general. When you know who you are, you know how to behave. Isn't that often the... the, the uh, issue within our behavior is that we behave in a manner that we think of ourselves at that moment. That's why, that's why even Christians at times can behave like Christians and at other times not behave like Christians. Why? Because we have, a, we have, a, we have a, a, an episode of amnesia. We forget who we are. Or we get around... People in the world act in a certain way and we forget we are, we are a Christian and all of a sudden, what do we do? We adopt their identity and begin to act like they act. A true identity, 
And I, I emphasize the word true. A true identity helps to make agonizing decisions. Now listen to this. Almost effortlessly. A true identity helps to make as agonizing decisions almost effortless. That works on an adult level, and it works on the level with kids, teenagers. Parents can often uh, realize that there has been a shift in a child's core group by behavior, right? All of a sudden, your child starts acting unlike they normally would act, and what's the first assumption? They must have a new group of friends. Why? Because their decision-making has been affected by something, and typically the decision-making has been affected by a perceived identity. A really good example of this is season three of Cobra Kai. You should watch that. It's a great illustration. Ten brand new episodes came out Friday. Done, completed, and in the can for me. All ten episodes. But actually when I was watching it, I couldn't help but think about the sermon and think about identity and how this show, how that show, at least that season, plays into how behavior is reflective to one's identity. And how decision-making becomes almost without effort when identity is strong. So as I examine Christianity's landscape, I am convinced that much of what troubles our tribe called Christian at its root is a lack of true identity. As Christians, we do not lack books, Uh, and sermons on identity, (laughs) peruse any Christian bookstore, and you will find that the largest section in any Christian bookstore is the self-help section. It is the largest section in Christian... They they call it Christian living. (laughs) That's a cover-up for... Not all of it's self-help and Christian living, but a lot of it is. The majority of it is. So my question is, with the proliferation of Christian self-help, why aren't Christians doing better? Right? If if we've got this unbelievable number of books on Christian self-help, then why aren't Christians doing better? I believe there's two reasons why Christians are not doing better today. The first, I will mention, but not address in any detail. It's humanism covered over with a very thin veneer of Scripture. Uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. It's, it's worldly teachings wrapped up in Scripture and peddles them to those whose genuine desire is to live according to the flesh. The, this is the Joel Osteen's of the world. Okay, this is the prosperity gospel. These are the health and wealth. And, and look, don't, don't think that only Joel falls into that category. There's some of the other guys who are not so obvious 
that fall into that category as well. You, you would be surprised. And even some of the female Bible teachers that are out today, uh, many of them have fallen prey and have fallen into this humanistic teaching that they package and box up inside with, with Scripture. It's flesh peddling. That's what I call it. Why? Because it, it does not crucify the flesh. It feeds the flesh. It's Christianity's most prevalent and mainstream teaching on identity. The second reason why Christians are not doing better comes from today's text. It does not come from a false identity, but from a failure to understand the Bible's teaching, full teaching, on identity. Most Christians have never experienced real and robust teaching on identity. And I'm listen, I'm going to include myself into that, and I'm even going to include that over the years that the teaching that I've done on identity has been lacking. It's been lacking. And that's been very evident to me over the last two months of preparing to uh, preach this text today. Most Bible teachers, and I include myself into that category, have failed their disciples when it comes to this true understanding of their Christian identity. Now listen, the failure is not in any way intentional or malicious. It's not like something that we just wanted to withhold from you. Our teaching has been adequate, adequate, but not necessarily accurate. I've said for 12 years now, words are important. And accurate words are even more critical. Today's text contains a word whose translation is adequate, but it's not exact. I want you to look at that word, serve. If you take notes or if you write in your Bible, I want you to, if you, especially if you write in your Bible, somewhere on that page where Romans 12, 11 is, I want you to write, the word servant, and then write a dash and write the word slave. Slave. So this morning, I, I believe that a full understanding of this very robust word here, slave, not servant, is the missing ingredient in the right comprehension of our true identity. I hope this morning that for all of us that we can, number one, get clarification of what it means to be a slave of Christ, and number two, crystallize that truth in our minds and in our hearts. Because the benefits that accompany that knowledge is really, not to over-exaggerate, it's absolutely life-changing. So let me, let's, let's talk about point number two, identity clarified. Identity clarified. So the word there, serve the Lord, is really the word slave. So what, are you saying, Brother Jason, it means slave the Lord? No, it, it, it's better translated this way. Be a slave to the Lord. Be a slave. So let's clarify this word of identity for Christians. The word here for 
servant is the Greek word doulos. D-O-U-L-O-S. D-O-U-L-O-S. And in the Greek, it simply and always and forever means slave. It never means anything else but slave. It doesn't mean servant. There are at least seven words in the New Testament, Greek words, for, for servant. Servant is well represented in the Greek language. There is only one word for slave, and that's doulos. It doesn't mean worker. It doesn't mean hired hand. It doesn't mean helper. It means slave. A servant is someone hired to do something, right? A slave is someone who is owned. Big difference. Big difference. All through the New Testament, the word enslaved is masked by the word servant. I'm going to blow your mind here for a second. The word servant, or the, let, let me rephrase that, the word doulos is translated servant 150 times in the New Testament. That's a, that, that's a lot of kind of cover up there. Now, I don't mean cover up into something that, you know, Bible translators were, were, were trying to do something evil or, again, malicious. You, you, we'll talk in a minute why in the world this word that's always and forever means slave ended up being translated servant. The New Testament translators only translate the word Slave, and you may say, well, I know, there's, there's several verses in the New Testament that are translated slave. And you're right, I'm getting to that. But it's only actually translated slave when it's referring to an actual, actual physical slave, like in the sense of Onesimus. Y'all remember Onesimus? The, the slave in the book of Philemon? Or if it refers to some kind of inanimate object, such as slave to sin or slave to righteousness. There are 22 major English translations of Scripture, and only one of 22 translates the word doulos, slave, every time. And if somebody could guess, if somebody could give me the translation that does that, I'll give you something. I don't know what it is. Anybody want to take a guess at what the only translation of the 22 major English translations actually translates doulos slave every time? It's the E.G. Goodspeed translation of the Bible. That's not even a real translation. Yeah, it is. That's what Matthew thought. He just didn't, you know, I mean, he didn't want to seem as smart as he is. He didn't want to shame everybody. But the Good Speed translation, in that, uh, 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 Mr. Good Speed, Dr. Good Speed was a, probably in his day and at the turn of the 20th century, was probably considered the, 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 the foremost theological scholar in the Greek language. And in his translation of the New Testament, he translates the word doulos, in every occasion, slave. 
It's the only major English translation that does such. In the theological dictionary of the New Testament, a well-known guy named Gerhard Kettle says this of the word doulos. Doulos means slave. The meaning is so unequivocal, no study of history is necessary. <laughs> End of sentence. Period. But he does go on to say this. It, is, it always means slave, and yet it's not translated slave. So the question is, why? Why? Why is, why is slave not translated slave? Well, we've got to go back to the first English Bible. So a little bit of Christian history lesson here. Okay, First English Bible in the 1500s. Not the King James. I love my King James only people, but y'all think y'all the only translation? The right translation? The holy translation? You're not even the first English translation. The Geneva Bible, the first English translation of the Bible, was put together in the 1500s. And in its translation, such guys as John Knox and John Calvin wrestled over this word, doulos. And exactly how they were going to translate it. And the reason why they chose to translate it servant and not slave, and the reason why it continues to be translated servant and not slave, has every, everything to do with the stigma that comes with the concept of slavery. They said, in essence, it's too strong of a downside. It's too humiliating of a word. It's too belittling. There's too much stigma attached to it. Translators have understandably wanted to avoid any association between the biblical teaching and the slave trade of the British Empire and the American colonial era. So again, that's why I said this is not malicious. This, this doesn't any, any, in any way affect the, uh, the truth of Scripture. But you have a group of men who are translating the Bible who have to make a very tough decision in, in the context in which they live. In order to avoid both potential confusion and negative imagery, modern translators have opt opted to cover the word by replacing it with servant or bondservant and eliminating the word slave. Except, again, when it talks about an actual physical slave or the inanimate object of slavery like sins of uh, slaves of sin sin uh, slave of righteousness so let me let me throw out a sidebar here and clarify something the ancient world had a particular the ancient world had uh, particularly nothing in common with the slavery of the new world Greco-Roman slavery and New World slavery had very little commonalities. So it was a very different type of slavery than that of which people experienced in particular in the 18th and the 19th centuries. And to impose such an understanding 
would, uh, would distort the interpretation of the Bible. For the average reader today, the word slave does not conjure up images of Greco-Roman society, but rather depicts what? An unjust system of oppression that was finally eliminated in England by parliamentary rule and in America by what is known as what? The Civil War. No matter the magnitude of its negativity, the sanitizing of this word has really stunted our sanctification. Listen, the Holy Spirit inspired the word doulos to be used. When translated accurately, doulos gives life-changing depth to these verses. Do you know why it took me two months to preach on this? Because I knew I was going to be using the word slave over and over and over and over again. And how uncomfortable it is to use that word. But let me give you, and this is what we're going to do on Wednesday nights. Let let me give you just a little taste of how changing servant to slave absolutely just brings richness and depth and conviction to the Bible. Here's an example. Matthew 6.24. You know this verse. No one can serve, what? Two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And you may say, okay, show that to me. There's the word serve. It's the word doulos. No one can be a slave to two masters. How often do masters have servants? It, it doesn't even really... That doesn't even jive because the word master there is the same word for Lord in today's text. Serve the Lord. That is the word kurios. K-Y-R-I-O-S. Which means master. No one can serve, no one can be a slave to two lords, to two masters. But guess what? You could be a servant to two, right? You could serve two people, couldn't you? You could have a day job and a night job. Anybody in here work two jobs? Day job and a night job. A lot of people work for more than one person, but you can't be a slave to two masters because you can only be owned by one. Servants had an element of freedom in choosing whom they worked for and what they did. The idea of servanthood maintains some level of self-autonomy and personal rights. Slaves, on the other hand, have no freedom. They have no autonomy. They have no rights. In the Greco-Roman world, slaves were bound to obey the master's will without hesitation or argument or complaint. Why do you think God gets so frustrated with the children of Israel with all of their complaining? Because slaves aren't supposed to complain. They're not supposed to bellyache. Do y'all remember when uh, the, the, the children of Israel were in slavery in Egypt? And Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says what? 
God said, let my people go, right? And what I hate about that is that Charlton Heston, dadgummit, he left off the entire verse. He only quoted half of it. The verse says, in the Bible, it says, let my people go that they may serve the Lord. Y'all want to guess what that word serve in the Old Testament means? What he's saying is, let the people out of your slavery so that they can come and be in my slavery. You still may not like it. You may still say, oh, this is just, this is terrible. Slavery. Slaves of Christ? Out of the slavery to Pharaoh, into the slavery of God? When you think about terms used to describe Christians in the New Testament, they're much better terms to use, right? How many of y'all like children of God? That sounds better, brother. Let's just focus on being children of God, brother Jason. That, that makes me feel a lot better. People watching will feel a lot better. Some people might start coming to church if we use children of God and not slaves of Christ. We're also called heirs and joint heirs of Christ. Well, that's a good term. We're called members of the body of Christ. Another good term. We're even uh, designated as branches, sheep. And each of those metaphors helps us to understand one of the many facets in our relationship with God. But listen to me. No matter how helpful those words uh, may be, be in helping us to understand our relationship to God, the number one most dominant, most often used word to describe our relationship with Christ is one word, and it is used, as I said, over 150 times to talk about our relationship to Christ, and it is the word slave. And here's the reason why. Because the word slave, as you'll see before this sermon is over with, carries with it the fullest idea of what it means to be saved. And this word slave is further magnified and complemented as the accurate word in our text, like I said, with the word, with the, with the word Lord, which is translated master. In fact, if you want to be saved... Look at Romans 10, 9, and 10. It's gonna, I think it's going to come up on the screen. What does it say? Because if you confess with Jesus, with your mouth, that Jesus is what? Lord, curios, master. And believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Curios is Lord and Master. Doulos is slave. You can no more eliminate doulos from the believer's relationship to the Lord than you could eliminate curios, Master. You see, the implication there is that when you have to confess Him as Lord, what you're doing, you as a slave are confessing, you are the Master of my soul. 
For with, a, for, with a, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses. Confesses what? Jesus is Lord and is saved. If He is Lord, which is to say He is Master, then I am His slave. There's no such thing as a master with no slaves, or slaves with no masters. According to 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Paul says this, Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is master except in the Holy Spirit. You see, we have a man-centered theology that dominates Christianity, in which we talk about Jesus coming along as some kind of buddy who loves you and wants to satisfy all your desires and give you everything you want. That's not Jesus, that's a genie. That's not Jesus, that's a genie. Such a teaching cannot be found anywhere in the New Testament. What the New Testament teaches is not that you're Lord and that He's your slave, it's that He is Lord and you are His slave. When you say that Jesus is Lord, you're saying, I'm a slave who understands that obedience is the necessary response. That's why Jesus so many times talks about obedience, because that is the response, the only response, the natural response to His Lordship, to His being Master. All right, real quick, John 15, 14. Let's take a look at it together. Great verse, but look at what it says. You are my friends if you do what I command you. What? Now imagine if I went up to Matthew and said, Now Matthew, you're going to be my friend because you're going to do everything I tell you to do. Matthew's going to be like, uh, I don't believe that's friendship. That's called dictatorship. So what's going on here? This is Jesus talking. He says, you are my friends contingent on you doing what I command you to do. That's some kind of weird friendship Jesus has got going on. I don't, I've never heard friendship talked about like that. But listen, this friendship assumes a prior relationship. If I'm in charge of you and I command you to obey me, you're my slave. But you're a slave, listen, because we're going to look at, look at the next verse. Go ahead and start looking at it. Verse 15. But you're a slave who is also given the privilege of being a friend. So are you, are you looking at the next verse? Are you ready? Look at what it says. No longer do I call you... Let's just say it together. Not, not that word, but the real word. I no longer call you... For the does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. So Jesus is not in any way diminishing that relationship. He's like, you are my slaves, but you and I have a different kind of relationship than, it's, than what is often found in slavery. What's the difference between this? 
The assumption is that we, uh, that we are slaves, and he says that. The difference is, you become my friends. Well, what is the distinction between being a slave and being a slave who is a friend? You know stuff. That's the difference. You know what the master's doing. A slave did, did not have to be given any reason to do anything. But here, Jesus is saying, in, in slavery to Christ, my slavery is a little bit different. Why? Because not only are you going to do what I tell you to do, but you're going to do what I tell you to, to do, and I'm going to tell you why I want you to do it. The Lord of the slave doesn't have to give him his agenda, his motivation, his purpose, his strategy, or his plan. But once he becomes a friend, a slave who is a friend, he says, all things I have heard from my Father, I have made, I have made known to you. I let you in on the inside secrets. So we're slaves who have been given the privilege of being friends. So what does that mean? It means he's in charge. It means that we obey his commands. But he commands us with full disclosure of all the reasons, all the marvelous and glorious reasons for why he's doing what he's doing. Now listen, two critical truths here about the believer's identity. One is Jesus is Lord means he owns us and he has absolute right to command us. He is sovereign. He rules over everything. He's our only master this word, yes, it's extremely powerful and it's extremely narrow. When the Lord offers the invitation to follow him, what does he say? If any man will come after me, let him what? Deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. You become a slave of Christ. Our life is not defined by our wants or our needs. We kind of talked about that earlier. So guess what? Some of us that are being run by our feelings, what do we need to do? We need a better understanding of that we are slaves of Christ, right? Because if we better understand that, then guess what? We realize that it's not about our wants, our wills, our desires, and our ambitions, but His will, His desires, His ambitions, His purposes. The basic truth of Christianity is this. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. Whatever He wants, I submit to it. Not my will be done, but your will be done. That's the first and greatest understanding of Christianity. The second, Jesus is Lord, is first. Second, Christians are slaves. We're owned. Consider with me a moment, for a moment, the inner workings of slavery. How did it work? This is, this is, this is why slavery is the best illustration and the best word to use to talk about Christianity. Don't miss this part, okay? Come on, lock in with me, stay with me. First, how did it work? First, there was a slave market, okay? Slaves were on a block for sale. You want to buy a slave? You go to the slave market. You pick out your slave, and then you pay for your slave, and then you own your slave. I'm not talking about 18th century 19th century colonial slavery. I'm talking about Greco-Roman slavery. Now, there's some similarities. Remember what I told you? There's similarities between Greco-Roman and colonial slavery. But there's some differences. Listen to it. 
In Greco-Roman, your purchase not only gave you control of the slave, but listen, it also meant that you were obligated to protect and provide for your slave. Furthermore, it meant that you would discipline your slave. And furthermore, you would reward your slave. Now attach that to Scripture's teaching on salvation. The Lord went into the slave market of sin, did He not? And He did what? He chose, and then He paid, a, then he paid the redemption price, and it wasn't silver or gold. What was it? It's precious blood. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 reminds us of that. And we are not our own, but we have been bought what? With a price. Again, slave language. So we have been chosen, we have been bought, we are owned, yet it doesn't end there. We are provided for, my God shall supply all of my needs according to his riches and glory. We are protected, and I'm not even going to go through all the verses about God's protection in our life. We are disciplined. Why? Because he says, I only discipline those whom I love, those who are sons and daughters of God, according to Hebrews chapter 13. We are rewarded. Well done, you good and faithful slave, not servant, slave. All those concepts within the magnificent realm of what it means to be a Christian are tied to the concept of being a slave. So let me crystallize this this morning. Identity crystallized. There is a different kind, this is a different kind of slavery. He provides everything that you need, makes you an intimate friend, and gives you full disclosure of everything that is on his heart. 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. He has revealed it to us on the pages of Scripture. He makes us sons and heirs and joint heirs with his own son. He makes us reign with him. He makes us citizens of his glorious kingdom. Your master loves you. I love this verse, John 13.1, this, this verse was a note to myself this week. Having loved his own who were in the wor world, he loved them, estelos. You're like, what? What's estelos mean? To the max. He loved them to the max. This is a master who loves with a perfect love, with a complete love, with an everlasting love. You will never understand your relationship to Jesus Christ until you see it in this light. Jesus is Lord, and I am his slave. Now, here's, here's my personal reflections on this this week. So, I'm going to use the word you, because this is, this is me talking to myself. You have been bought, not for demeaning work, but for meaningful work. You have a master who does not leverage our lives for profit or leverage my life for profit. He proves his love for me by becoming a slave in order to leverage his life for the payment of my sin. You have a master who does not seek, to, who does not seek me to provide and meet his needs. He purchased me to meet my needs. You have a master who does not use you 
to build his wealth. He uses his wealth to provide for your welfare. Let me give you one more reason why this master is worthy of our complete slavery. I think this is going to come up on the screen. Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 and 8. If it's not critical, write it down. You need it. It's, you're not going to understand it until you see this. Or listen, no, it's not that you're not going to understand it. You're not going to embrace it until you see this verse. But emptied himself by taking on the form of a... Who's he talking about? Jesus. Jesus. Who took on the form of a slave? Jesus. He is asking you to become on earth what he was on earth. Can you remember that? Why is Jesus asking me to be a slave? Why is God commanding me to be his slave? Why does salvation have to be slavery talk? Because Jesus became on earth what he wants you and I to be on earth, his slave. What did Jesus say? Everything I see my father do, I do. Whatever my father tells me to do, that's what I do. Not my will, but your will be done. All slave language. He was the son who became a slave. These are the last two sentences, by the way. These are the two sentences. I think, they're, I, think I put them in, Mark. I hope I did. Uh, if I didn't, I'll just say them to you. He was the son who became a slave so that slaves of sin could be, could be uh, slaves of Christ and sons of God. He was the son who became a slave so that slaves of sin could be slaves of Christ and sons of God. That's not the two sentences, Mark. That's why... You should write that down, though. Hopefully you did write that down. But here's the two sentences. Got a little ahead of myself. True identity is not found in who I am. It is found in whose I am. So let me read that previous statement again. He was the son who became a slave so that slaves of sin could become slaves of Christ and sons of God. So your true identity is not found in who I am. It's found in whose I am. Do you know why you sin? Before you were saved? Because you were slaves of sin. That's your identity. Ephesians 2 said that you were slaves of sin. Slave sin was your master. So listen, here's the reality. This morning you are a slave either to sin or to the Savior. But we are all slaves. That's the reality. We may not want to admit it. We may not like it. That's the truth. We have a master. The master of sin or the master that's called the Savior. 
But this morning, he became a slave so that you could, one, become a slave of Christ, and number two, that you could become a son of God. Jesus was no less the son of God because he became a slave. It is said of those in first century Christianity that when the word Christian was used, it was always, David, if you will, come on. We're going to sing here, just say, it was always used with the intent of slave. When a person said, I'm a Christian, they were in essence saying, I'm a slave of Christ. Paul, just do, go home today or do it right now in your Bible. Look at Romans 1. Look at all the, the, the opening chapters and the first verses of everything that Paul wrote. And he'll say, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. That's slave. Hey, if you were Jesus' half-brother and you got to write a book in the Bible, how many of you would say, Jason, half-brother of Jesus? Right? I would. Because I'm looking for some clout. You are to read my book. Why? Because I'm Jesus' half-brother. Do you know how James, the half-brother of Jesus, opens up his epistle? James, a servant, a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, the one whom the church was founded upon, says in 2, 2 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, Peter, a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. This is who we are. And when we begin to understand more fully who we are as a slave in Christ and what that means and all the richness and the benefits that come with that, we will move from this servant mentality which is almost like a hired gun, someone that's kind of in and out, someone that's kind of up and down, to someone who can become more and more steady, more and more consistent, someone that's more and more persistent in their living. Why? Because we are not, we are not servants of God. We are slaves. We are here to do what He has commanded us to do why? Because he became a slave on earth so that we could live, that we could live to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, tough pill to swallow, a word that brings so much imagery into our minds that is negative, and, and it should be because slavery, as many of us know it, is, is horrendous. It is mind-boggling that it ever existed in the way that it did in these United States of America. But no matter how uncomfortable the word is, it's still the word of choice of your Holy Spirit to make the deep connection of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to be saved. But yet this master that has bought us 
off the auction block, has done it at his own expense, through the expense of his own blood. And yet you don't bring us into your family to for us to provide for your needs, but you provide for our needs. Not for us to bring provide you protection, but you bring us protection. Everything that we see in, 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 in this world as it relates to slavery, you, you turn it on its head. But you show us the purest form in the fact that your son took on the form of a slave. And he wasn't any less the son of God because he did that. And if we want to be fully children of God, we will realize that first and foremost, we are your slave. We are not to quarrel or question your commands, but we are with, with obedience. Full-hearted obedience. Obey so that we can experience what full sonship and friendship is really like. So in these moments ahead, Lord Jesus, I pray that if there's anyone that's never submitted their life to you, that's never come to you and said, Lord, forgive me of my sin. Be my Lord, and I will be your slave. I pray that they would do that. And for those of us that have made that confession of Jesus is Lord, by the, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, may we with freshness today make that declaration again and go forth from this place living more and more as though you really are our master, and we are your slave in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing this final song this morning.